0: Hello and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall and filling in today for Emma is Eric Gomez, a policy analyst here at Cato. Hi, Eric. Hey. Today on Power Problems, we're going nuclear, Uh, specifically we're going to dig into the nuclear state of play in Asia, where there is a lot happening these days. Um, For starters, uh, we have North Korea, uh, where talks have just broken down between North Korea and the United States. Um, On the heels of North Korea testing missile systems sort of willy-nilly, I hear that's a technical term, Uh, making all sorts of folks nervous, although maybe not Trump, can't tell. Uh, We also have rising tensions uh, between Pakistan and India over the situation in Kashmir, uh, raising again questions about how both countries view the role and potential use of nuclear weapons. And China's nuclear forces are also worth tracking, uh, both due to the way that uh, nuclear deterrence factors into U.S.-China great power competition, uh, as well as the Trump administration's efforts uh, to bring Beijing into uh, arms control agreements. And those are just some of the highlights. Uh, so today we're fortunate to have a leading expert on these issues with us. Uh, Vipin Narang is an Associate Professor of Political Science at MIT and a member of MIT's Security Studies program. Welcome for joining us. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks, Eric. Great to be here. Fantastic. All right, let's 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 get right into it. Um, and let's let's just start with North Korea since that's just um, most recently in the news um, the United States met with uh, North Korean folks in Stockholm um and after uh the talks ended in I, what I heard was a disgusting failure acrimonious uh, yeah acrimonious and disgusting failure according to the North Koreans um it doesn't necessarily look like there'll be uh, more talks um does it matter where was this heading is, is there anything that could happen next uh, wh- where do you see this i mean i I've been skeptical
1: from the beginning about what the you know, the the gulf between the U.S. and North Korea and what the purpose of the talks are. I think um, even if uh, the U.S. shows up with uh, a comprehensive denuclearization deal that can be implemented in a step-by-step fashion, as Steve Began outlined at Stanford, which is um, certainly better than the John Bolton model, which is you know forcing North Korea to surrender everything, the whole enchilada, plus the guacamole and sour cream, before it gets any sanctions relief. Um, the North Koreans are not interested in talking about disarmament. They're talking, you know, they're. I think the purpose for the for the North Koreans in the talks is to ratify their status as a nuclear weapons power. Uh, and I think if we look at this week in particular, it was you know only um, you know Tuesday that the SLBM. Uh, the Pukasong 3 was tested from an either an underwater barge or pontoon. It was a solid fuel missile, but that was basically, you know, since 2017, it was the first nuclear-capable, explicitly nuclear-capable system that was tested, and... You know, the message I don't think should be lost on, on the world in the United States several days before working-level talks were supposed to begin. It was basically, you know, this we're a nuclear weapons power. We're here to stay, and we're not giving this up. You test tridents on a regular basis. You tre- test your Minutemen 3. We're going to test our SLBMs. Uh, and so if you go into working-level talks thinking we're going to roll back our program, you have another thing coming. Uh, and, I you know, I think, uh, you know, the the talks... May have broken down this particular time, but this is also, you know, if you're North Korea, what is your your optimal strategy? This is kind of what North Korea does. It's it's designed to build leverage. I don't think the North Koreans are going to walk away entirely and forever. This rope a strategy they're playing, stalling on meeting with the U.S., then you know walking out, but dangling the hope that you can have future talks, uh, works perfectly for them because what does it do? It buys time. And if you're a nuclear weapons power that has, you know, where North Korea probably is right now is a minimum deterrent. They have. A liquid fuel ICBM capability, you know, there are doubts about the reentry vehicle, but I, for one, am not willing to dare them to test it uh, to show us that it works. I'm willing to bet, you know, if it's even if it works 10% of the time, you know, I'm not willing to bet 10% chance that Los Angeles is going to get uh, destroyed in a retaliatory strike. Um, and so they have a minimum deterrent for political purposes. But like all normal nuclear powers, they have an interest in developing solid fuel missiles, a wide range of capabilities, improving their uh, force. If you're facing the U.S., you, you may want a bigger force than North Korea has. So time, you know, for all the time that passes before there is a deal, uh, you know, of any sort that, you know, even just basically ratifies their status as nuclear weapons power, North Korea keeps t- expanding and improving its force. And I think we may look back at the Hanoi offer. And if it was real, uh, if it was the real deal and Kim Jong-un was willing to, you know, shut down the Yongbyon facility, and a lot of the modalities would have still had to be where who's going to go first. Could we pour concrete in the reactor? But if you could shut down the only known source of plutonium uh, and constrain the future composition of the force, uh, that's not nothing. And if that was on the table, I think we may look back and regret walking away from that uh, because it may have put meaningful constraints on the growth of the North Korean nuclear program. And it's not clear that'll be back on the table anytime soon. Given you know, if Kim Jong Un is looking at President Trump's domestic political situation here, he may think, look. You know, P- President Trump may be my best my best bet, but I also know that President Trump at this point is not going to do anything to start a war. Uh, and so he can continue to play this game uh, almost indefinitely. Uh, and I think that's kind of how I would look at the way the the talks broke down. So I don't think they broke down entirely. Uh, I think the North Koreans will continue to keep the channels open and dangle the hope of future talks and just drag it out. But there is this clear end of year deadline that the North Koreans have repeatedly uh you know, reinforced and emphasized. And it's unclear to me what happens at the end of the year. I mean, we just saw an SLBM test. and I wonder what happens after an SLBM test. You could imagine, uh, you know, a longer range land-based test. You can imagine a satellite launch vehicle, which kind of looks like an ICBM, but isn't. You could imagine another ICBM test. Worst case scenario, we may get, you know, a resumption of nuclear testing. Uh, So I think, you know, we, we, I'm not, I don't want to, you know, uh, call Kim Jong-un's bluff because every time... The North Koreans have said they're going to do something. They've pretty much done it, uh, so I'm a little concerned about what happens at the end of the year and whether uh, Kim Jong Un reigns in, you know, rings in the New Year with a fireworks show, um, you know, and on the hope that President Trump or the the gamble that President Trump doesn't do anything about it, uh, which so far has you know proven to be a pretty good bet for uh, Kim Jong Un. He tested the SLBM, and President Trump didn't seem to care. Uh, and the North Koreans walked away when uh, you know, they basically stated their version of events was the U.S. showed up without a so-called new calculation uh, after the Hanoi summit. And so I think we have to see where things go. But I'd be surprised if the North Koreans shut down the dialogue completely, uh, given that their interest is basically just to buy time at this point. And uh, when you said that we might be looking back and really wanting what we left at Hanoi,
2: I think I tweeted exactly that. When the Hanoi summit failed, I said, you yeah. know, six months from now, you're going
1: to wish you had this deal. And it looks like we're right on Good time. Prediction. yeah. I mean, I think that, that's exactly right. I mean, and, you know, just the way the North Koreans have 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 played for time, you know, after, you know, President Trump shows up at Panmunjom, we have the spate of missile tests, uh, you know, kind of in response to the Dongmen exercises between the U.S. and uh, South Korea. Uh, and he just, you know, he basically puts his head in the sand. But all of those are solid fuel missiles. They're a nightmare for regional missile uh, defenses. And uh, you know, all of those technologies, you know, you can't. Re- it's not necessarily you know easy to graph them onto the ICBMs. But they're getting more comfortable and experienced with solid fuel. And you know, those are things that we don't necessarily want to see in their ICBM force because it makes the ICBM force more responsive, more survivable. Uh, and you know, it, it's 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 plausible that we may look back and say, you know, the if 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 uh, you know, we thought that working level talks were going to be two to three weeks after President Trump's July visit to Panmunjom, and then we're you know four months later, uh, and the State Department after the talks just broke down said you know we'll meet again in two to three weeks. So the North Koreans have shown no interest. It sounds like in meeting that quickly, um, and they played for time. and They played for time pretty well because you know I think Kim Jong Un has decided why waste your time with working level talks if the president is interested in another summit. I'm just going to hold out for that.
2: And speaking of Trump, where do you see not only sort of during Trump, but also a f- the next administration after him? Because I think that on the plus side, you know, I've I've been more optimistic. I think for most of this process, and now I'm probably at where you are in terms of level of pessimism um, about where things go from here. But you know, I think that leader to leader contact between the U.S. and North Korea in general, is a positive thing because it could enable certain discussions to happen that previously we couldn't get done. But I don't see that happening under Trump himself just because of who he is
1: and also his domestic situation. I think two things. One, uh, if you're Kim Jong-un, you think that your best bet is Trump. I mean, Hmm. President Trump has been has shown no inclination to start a war with North Korea over anything or pressure Kim Jong-un over anything. Um, I think the risk that Kim Jong-un makes is that if he pushes Trump too far, especially right now, given the domestic political situation, Trump has shown a proclivity to do a 180, right? If he thinks somebody has been disloyal or, you know, has uh, violated or betrayed him, uh, we can see Trump can turn 180. So that's a gamble that Kim Jong-un is taking. Uh, I think the other thing I would say is that the leader to leader summit Singapore in general, I wasn't opposed to lead, the leader to leader summit. I think the problem was that Kim Jong un basically short circuited the working level talks beforehand. And so the leader to leader summit happened too early. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a signal to Kim Jong un that he doesn't, he can dispense with the working level talks. And the North Koreans have always said in working level talks that they have no authority to talk about nuclear weapons. And they now use that basically as a. Uh, as an excuse not to discuss nuclear weapons related issues, it sounds like, uh, based on what we're reading. Who knows what you know, the actual the, you know, negotiations are like, but it seems like based on the reporting on both sides, there's no real discussion of even the meaning of denuclearization because only Kim Jong-un can, can do that, which is their excuse and method to get back to the Leader Leader Summit. And so when once President Trump only went to Singapore, but then Hanoi, and then Panmunjom, you know, without working level talks ahead of time, it just laid the groundwork for, you know, this North Korean strategy of just dispensing with working level talks and using that basically as uh, a vehicle to get to the, you know, the the leader to leader summit by walking out. Right. Because if you know Kim Jong-un can say, oh, you know, forget the working level talks, but I'll still meet with you one on one. And then we'll just rinse and repeat. I just don't know how many more rinse cycles we have before the washing machine blows up. Well, I think
0: Trump's shot his last shot on this. I don't I don't see. I mean, he could do a 180 fine that's that that's a whole different story I, I don't think they have much I mean after What's left to talk after about after maximum summit. maximum pressure times 1, how many right. X's can you put in the word maximum and then you're out of ideas um so the question for me is sort of um, thinking beyond Trump's first term uh, you know good Lord willing uh Is it time to pivot to arms control instead of denuclearization? I think we
1: should have done that. I I mean, mean, that was from day one. I mean, I think the the problem was so. If you look at the sequence of the summits, Singapore was basically the broad guidelines from the North Korean perspective. I mean, if you look at the sequence, except for POWs, uh, the the sequence of commitments at Singapore is exactly what the North Koreans probably put on the table. And because they ran the clock on the working level talks right before Singapore, basically, I don't think we had an option or an alternative but to accept basically that sequence in some of the language. Hanoi was, you know, basically an attempt to implement some of the guidelines in Singapore, Singapore, but Kim Jong-un showed up in Hanoi basically looking to ratify him, you know, North Korea as a nuclear weapons power. When that didn't happen, I think there was a lot of consternation within the North Korean system, you know, um, you know, the the lead negotiator, uh, we haven't seen or heard from him since, but, uh, you know, there was, I think, a little bit of disappointment about how they misread President Trump, because I think at Hanoi, we also, you know, maybe they didn't read the Michael Cohen situation or the uh, or the domestic political situation here at that time correctly, and so Trump basically, you know, bolted uh, Kim Jong Un, and that led to uh, a real setback. And then the third meeting is at Panmunjom to pick up the fifteen yards we lost at Hanoi, just to get things going again, because Kim Jong Un was, you know, licking his wounds and trying to figure out how to go forward. And Trump shows up at Panmunjom, and okay, you know, if if you look at the body language at Panmunjom, it was very interesting because Trump was very warm. But if you look at the video, at least from my perspective, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, which is often the case, uh, the body language from Kim Jong Un was interesting. It wasn't. He seemed uncomfortable. He wasn't. He wasn't warm. He wasn't laughing. He was always. He never looked directly at at President Trump. Uh, And I think they were still trying to figure out what the U.S. calculation was. Uh, And I think. What made it worse in retrospect was that it sounds like President Trump, if uh, Alex Ward's reporting from Vox last week is accurate, and I have no reason to believe it wasn't because it was confirmed, I think, by Time magazine then. That President Trump basically committed to Kim Jong-un there that he would suspend the Dong Manga exercises. And when that didn't happen, then we saw the spate of you know, new missile tests, the, the MLRS, the KN-23, and then we saw the prototype submarine, and then we saw the SLBM test. And so there may be a real sense of betrayal by, from Kim Jong Un thinking what's the point of this uh if he's not going to ratify the fact that I'm a nuclear weapons power I dare him to take them away by force and with Bolton out of office that the argument for that is probably gone uh and you know if maximum pressure has no air left in it time is on Kim Jong Un's side and the the force is getting bitter bigger is getting better uh and so in a lot of ways this is Kim Jong-un's maximum pressure campaign against us, and it's working. I mean, I don't see any way, if we don't talk about arms control, if we don't talk about slowing the growth of the program and putting the caps up, you know, or at least constraining the the composition of the force the way it seemed like he might've been willing to do in Hanoi, then, you know, at the end, you know, this all benefits Kim Jong-un in North Korea, I think. So we could talk about
2: North Korea all day long, but uh, to move on to other parts of the Asian region here, um, what about, Indian Pakistan. Don't uh, forget
1: about Indian Pakistan. Don't forget yeah. about Indian Pakistan. They're my first beat.
2: Yeah, my first yeah. beat was South Asia. Um, and you've gotten a lot of heat recently on, on the Twitter machine for some stuff you have written and said about uh, Indian nuclear doctrine that I personally find very, very convincing. But most of Indian Twitter apparently
1: does not find very convincing. Well, They do convincing. now because their defense minister basically dispensed with no first use. I was just ahead of my time, as like I like to say. <laughs> and so it's funny, the same people who were jumping on my head for, uh, you know, saying that India might have reservations about an absolute no first use, especially for preemption, which has long been a concern for India. Like if there was detection of Pakistani, imminent Pakistani nuclear use from day one, Prime Minister Vajpayee, you know, was very uncomfortable with the fact that India wouldn't preempt Pakistan. Uh, And so when we said this two years ago, everyone was like, "Okay, you don't know what you're talking about. There's no evidence for this. Those same people were the ones jumping up and down and celebrating when the defense minister finally came out and said. You know, India has uh, adhered to a no first use doctrine up until today. What happens tomorrow depends on circumstances. That was August of this year, right? And so, uh, you know, this is a long time coming. And I really don't think, you know, um, you know, India has the the doctrine was now is now 16 years old and circumstances have changed. And from day one, uh, there's always been this discomfort with an absolute no first use policy, especially uh, if there was evidence or indications of imminent Pakistani use. There's no way a democratically elected Indian prime minister could sit back and let Pakistan use nuclear weapons on Indian citizens or forces if he knew it was coming. The more interesting development with India's no first use policy is, you know, when the defense minister just said this, are there other circumstances beside Pakistani, you know, imminent use where India might find it useful to use nuclear weapons first? And the obvious other scenario is if it's losing a conventional war with China, would it consider using nuclear weapons uh, in such a circumstance? I am skeptical of that, but it's it's certainly you know not out of the realm of theoretical possibility. I don't think there's any any evidence for it at this point, but uh, it's not you know that would be the other plausible scenario where India might find it useful if it was ever in a shooting war with China. But I don't see actually how we get there in the first place. But um, so how does
2: this new these new sorts of developments and, and quotes from Indian officials? graft onto the current situation in Kashmir where India revoked its special status under the right. constitution and has kicked off a lot of civil unrest in the region and, um, uh, basically extollations from, uh, the Pakistani prime minister to try and figure out like a way, uh, forward, like a peaceful way forward here, because right. it sounds like the temperature is rising pretty rapidly. Yeah.
1: I mean the, so the revocation of article three, so article three seventy granted special status to Kashmir and uh as part of its agenda and its manifesto the BJP has long said it's going to revoke article 370 now supporters of the revocation say article 370 was in it was uh, a temporary provision uh but it required certain procedures for it to be reversed those conditions were uh, legally, you know the the justification for revoking it a little circuitous legally, but the fact is, I think it's a it's a, it's it's irreversible at this point. I think this is the the new status quo. The Indian government uh, has 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 basically um, reverse mortgaged Kashmir and made it a union territory. So It's under central control, um, and the security footprint there is quite substantial. Uh, they're I think they're hoping to relax the cell phone bans and the detentions of mainstream political leaders. I mean, from a PR perspective, I think the government of India has a real problem on its hands. And I, I don't know if it appreciates, especially here in Washington, D.C., you know, the level of concern. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, uh, you can say, OK, Bernie Sanders' uh, concern is one thing. But Alice Wells, if you read the State Department um, statement on it after the uh, U.N. Gen- or I think it was before the U.N. General Assembly and then Elizabeth Warren. I mean, there's some uh, Senator Van Hollen. There is increasingly mainstream concern and every day the front page of the new york times is carrying you know pictures of uh you know the despair in kashmir they it, and so the indian government has a has a pr problem on its hands uh at the very least and the revocation was kind of a red flag in front of the militant organizations in pakistan who have long said, you know called for the liberation of kashmir and you know this is their kind of ex- the raison d'etre uh and so my concern is actually that you know the we may see, it may heat up before it calms down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is related, I think, to the February crisis between India and Pakistan where, um, you know, there was a, an attack on the CRPF, which is a um, paramilitary force in Kashmir, security force by a local Kashmiri boy, but he was radicalized by a Pakistani group, the Jaishin Muhammad. That led to a very serious crisis between India and Pakistan on February 26th for the first time. I think in history, another nuclear power used air power on the sovereign, on the mainland territory of another nuclear power um, directly. Uh, And that was a real escalation. The Indians have long been frustrated with what they believe to be Pakistani-backed support of terrorism on the Indian homeland and its inability to respond. And so the Modi government criticized the Congress government before it, after the Bombay attacks for not doing anything, decided, you know what, we're going to do something this time. Uh, And they... Parked ordinance on mainland Pakistani territory. The Pakistanis responded the next day. Uh, their aircraft crossed the line of control. Uh, it was kind of, I think, what they claim is an intentional miss. They didn't hit the brigade headquarters uh, on the Indian side. Uh, but India lost a MiG-21. The pilot survived. Uh, there was a friendly fire incident where the Indians shot down one of their own, own MI-17s. Uh, and so in a short engagement, the Pakistani Air Force at least held its own. Uh, and the crisis looked like it might escalate, and the Indians rattled the nuclear saber. The uh, Pakistanis rattled the nuclear saber. You had Prime Minister Modi talking about on the campaign trail, we don't keep this in the basement. We you know, it's, we don't keep it for Diwali, just for fireworks. The Indians uh, want at least some audiences to believe that they deployed the INS Arihant um, at the height of the crisis. I mean, they, the chief of naval staff has indicated they deployed it. The question, were well, there nuclear weapons on board? Uh, and if so, that may, might be the first time in a crisis between India and Pakistan, one side actually deployed a ready nuclear system. And we always assumed it would be the Pakistanis that would do it first, but this time it was the Indians. Uh, and so I think the Indians are are getting more comfortable with the tempo of, uh, you know, deployments with their nuclear systems. And it's this this notion that the Pakistanis are going to be the first to flush out a system. With the with the Arihant, uh, you know, the, the Indians might be the first to go. And the Pakistanis took note of that. Uh, and a lot of this is signaling. A lot of it is, you know, rhetoric. We don't know what the Indians actually did, uh, but the Pakistanis have taken note, and I think this informs future crises. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, the the problem or the my concern is that one these after the revocation of three seventy in particular, these crises are going to happen again. There, I don't think Pakistan, uh, you know, the Pakistani militant groups now have, I think, a raison d'être, and there's going to be, you know, there's a soft underbelly in urban India. Uh, and, you know, c- protecting the, all of those urban centers is is very difficult. And I re- I'm very, very, very concerned that there will be uh, militant attacks from Pakistan in in, uh, in urban India, not necessarily in JNK. I'm sure there will be, you know, um, some there. But uh, we have now set up in motion, right, after the February crisis, both sides walked away think, think, thinking they won, uh, which is good to de-escalate that crisis. But it's bad for future crises because mm-hmm. they both think that they can get a punch in. And that escalation is good and escalation is easy to to control and retaliation theater is good for domestic political audiences. But at some point, this isn't just a movie. Right. Right. This
0: is I mean, this is this is the the Kashmir is the, the Kashmir chapter in the nuclear deterrence handbook keeps growing. Because you have, you know, all these questions that are sort of under sort of live real-time examination. W- what are the limits of nuclear deterrence right. w- escalating What's the space to de-escalating? Right? You yeah. know, what, the, what are the thresholds? You know, wh- what are the pathways to inadvertent escalation? Mm-hmm. The Sagan-Waltz debate on mistakes yeah. versus responsible, you know, behavior. I mean, the, every single thing you ever learned in any class about nuclear weapons is on display right now. Right. And, and the, it's know, the, the
1: terrifying result. No, absolutely. And the Indians, you know, the... and. Um... Prime Minister Modi in the campaign trail. So take everything Prime Minister Modi says in the campaign trail with the Grand Assaults campaign. Um, But it was kind of the first time in a campaign that nuclear weapons and, you know, the the conflict with Pakistan took on such salience. He would say, you know, the the, the line he uses, you know, we're going to pay it back with interest. Well, that sets up this dynamic where, you know, if if what they hit in Balakot wasn't enough and there's a follow-on attack, does that commit him to hit something else? And where? There are only a limited number of targets like Balakot. Kind of on a hillside, and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa is mainland Pakistan, but it's not Punjab, right? It's not urban Pakistan, and you know the, the the Indians claimed it wasn't a military target and it wasn't a civilian target because it was a it was basically a madrasa for Jeshi Muhammad. Um, and so the next time around, the Pakistanis is just going to vacate targets like that. So what are you going to hit? What's left? What's the es- What's what's the next rung up in the conventional escalatory ladder where you think you can stay below, below Pakistan's thresholds? And I, I'm i kind of nervous as to see where they will go. And uh, part of that is the deterrence dynamic. But I don't know that that's going to deter the Pakistanis, particularly since the Pakistanis have told themselves a story where the Indians didn't really destroy much at Balakot. And if you look at the February 27th balance, the Pakistanis can tell themselves a story where they came out ahead, shot down a MiG-21. India lost an MI-17 in friendly fire, and there's still this litigation about the PAF F-16, but, you know, I think uh, quietly most – most uh, at least I, I believe that the, the U.S. government assessment is that no Pakistani Air Force F-16 was killed. And if you're Pakistani, you think, okay, well, we, you know, we held our own, and so – uh, I'm not sure that the deterrence dynamic that the Modi government wanted to establish by hitting Balakot has actually been established.
0: Right. right. Pakistani optimism remains on flag. Correct. Unfortunately. Yeah. Optimism yeah. is a terrible thing, children.
1: Well, and both sides and especially both sides have that. And if you're Indian, you say we hit pocket. Paki- we had resolve. We showed a tremendous amount of resolve. And so that was really helpful, I think, in, in de-escalating the Balakot crisis because the pilot was handed over and the Indians. Uh, Prime Minister Modi said he was ready for, you know, to initiate surface to surface missile strikes. if. Um the pilot Abhinundan wasn't handed over expeditiously. So thankfully he was. But you know, both sides have this narrative which helped de-escalate that they won. And that helped satisfy the domestic political constituencies. But if they both really believe that, then, you know, they both can't be right. So you set up this dynamic where you, you can get further escalation next time as the Indians try to, you know, push up on the threshold, and the Pakistanis may say, look, now you've crossed it, now you know. And we we can hold our own, so we can retaliate
0: also. Oh joy! All right. Well, let's, enough of that part of the world. Only happy stories here. Yeah. No. All right. Let's let's turn to China. Um, and and so I think maybe two parts here. Um, one, it seems that U.S. concerns about um, you know China's modernizing nuclear forces um, uh, is is influencing American military strategy. And sort of part two related, um, the Trump administration withdrawing from INF um, and you know has made it clear that they'd like to. In, Involve China in sort of maybe a INF 2.0 or something like that, and I I think maybe they don't understand.
1: I it's a poison pill. You just you know yeah. the, talking about China on any arms control agreement right now, whether it's INF or New Start, is just a way I think to an excuse to not have an arms control agreement. I mean that's it, it makes it, I, it they're they're trying to square the circle and look like they're in favor of arms control, but knowing full well that it's a it's dead on arrival. So. Um, I, I don't think there's any interest on the Chinese side in getting involved, especially, you know, uh, INF. the INF Treaty was time-specific, time-bound, geographically bound for Europe. doesn't make sense in Asia, especially if you're China, right? I mean, you need INF-range glycums and ballistic missiles. So that, the reality is the Chinese are never going on board with the INF and New START. What is the New START number for China? Zero? Right. right. Or close, close yeah, to zero, are, depending on, yeah. I mean, we should all have Chinese close to zero. nuclear postures. That right. Would be exactly. First school, right? No, no deployed strategic nuclear right. system. Very few. I mean, at not very many, if there are any, I, I don't know. Like the in actual the, number.
2: Probably in the tens of like, where yeah. Count. Yeah. Right. Um, so which leads into a good question about, you know, what do you see as some common misperceptions among U.S. leaders, whether it be executive or legislative branch about what China's nuclear force posture is. Right. Uh, because I know, like, I, I work a lot in this space and I notice a lot of people talking about China and their nuclear forces and making certain statements yeah. about, oh, like, how scary it it's is, or, oh, they're question. modernizing. and like, it's a great question. And but it seems like they miss a lot.
1: I think, I think the co- most common misperception mispercep- is that Chinese nuclear strategy has not changed in decades. But the requirements to achieve that strategy are obviously dictated by not only US forces, but US missile defenses. And so if you're China and you think, how do I, I, I want an assured retaliation strategy. I am willing, I and I think of any no first use policy in the world, China's maybe the closest to being credible, even though I think it's very difficult to make any no first use policy credible. Mm-hmm. I think China's probably the most credible, just the way they steward their forces. Um, and so- I think for the longest time, China actually did not have an assured retaliation posture. I say, I think in my book, I call it plausible retaliation. <laughs> but now you're facing uh, a more sophisticated uh, and layered and a thicker American missile defense system, both in the region. And you have to worry about what's going to happen with our, our, our GMD down the road. Now, even if there is this you know, common, common claimant, which I agree with, missile you know ground-based missile defense, mid-course missile defense doesn't work today. And it doesn't. Not particularly well. But- there's no guarantee that we may not be able to get it to work against a handful of weapons in the future. And if you're China and the U.S. says, you know, our GMD is really, you know, sized for North Korea or for Iran or rogue actors. You're China. You're thinking, OK, that's right. But America also has this really, you know, terrifying counterforce capability and both conventional and nuclear. So the concern, if I'm Chinese nuclear planners, is. The U.S. can make my force look like North Korea's with a first strike, and then I may have nothing or very few left to retaliate against. Uh, and a missile defense that is sized for North Korea once you make my force look like North Korea's also works against me. So I think all of the developments that we saw on display in the in the parade or what they wanted us to see on the or, you know what they want us to think they were developing the DF seventeen hypersonic glide vehicle. I mean, all of that is about maneuverability to defeat missile defenses. Uh, The DF-41, you know, MIRV capabilities is to saturate missile defense. A lot of this, it's not the U.S. nuclear posture that worries the Chinese, it's missile defenses. And everything that they're developing from SL, you know, from... uh, you know, SSBNs and SLBMs to hypersonic glide vehicles to penetration aids and MIRVs and heavy and mobile solid fuel ICBMs. It's about survivability against the first counterforce attempt and then being able to penetrate against missile defenses. And those are the requirements now to achieve assured retaliation against the United States because we have improved, you know, across the board in both counterforce and uh, with missile defenses. So I think the biggest myth is that Chinese the Chinese force structure does not represent a new strategy or posture. It is to implement the old strategy and posture as those requirements change in the face of what is a, an incredibly sophisticated and terrifying U.S., right. you know, it, nuclear it, force structure and missile defense. It's not
2: trying to like it's not trying to match the U.S. Race. at no, all. Not, it, it, yeah. yeah. But it's easy to kind of if the narrative in Washington is, oh, shoot, China is now the big bad. They're the big threat. Yeah, we I mean, have to I think that's,
1: there are political interests in in making yeah. that story. I mean, I think there are two things. I think one for less sophisticated. Uh, you know, analysts or nuclear, you know, and especially you know, in if they have a political agenda, right? The the dynamism doesn't either. They they're will in willful denial about the dy- the dynamic requirements for assured retaliation, or the you know it's in service of a political agenda. As a you know, uh, we're academics or analysts, we can we have you know we're free to say whatever we think. But I think you know it's when I look at the uh, when I look at nuclear modernization programs, uh, from Russia. To China, they're all driven by missile defenses, and uh, you know I think it would be naive for us to think that like you know our missile defenses don't put a lot of pressure on these countries, and that's I think a lot of the aim of missile defense. I think part of missile defense is even if it doesn't work, it forces your adversary to build up and modernize and spend a lot of money. And look at what they you but, know the, the self licking ice cream
0: cone yeah. that the hawks have yeah. loved since. Since Reagan birthed Correct. this it's the terrible dream, idea mean. in yeah. the 80s, it's destabilizing. It's terrible, and if people really believed that missile defense was only to defend against rogue nation missile attacks, then we would give the technology to everyone because that would be the way to protect everyone from these sorts of things. And then, would, but we don't do that, of course. And then we pretend that you know. But and you it's look at
1: the cost that you know, uh, like Russia is willing to to, to run. I mean, the nuclear powered cruise missile in the accident. You know, kill five Russian nuclear scientists, and that, or that's that's a real cost, and it's all driven by uh, the fear of missile defenses and having to, needing to have something that can evade you know missile defenses eventually. I mean, yeah, and then but then that
2: also begs the question of well, if our goal is to spend a little to get them to spend themselves into the oblivion, why do we keep pumping in money into systems that just
1: don't work? Because <laughs> one day it might. I mean, one, it makes it credible, but I also think there's a constituency that you know there's a you know, there's a constituency that wants to get this to work. Got to keep that Raytheon stock up,
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's let's to wrap things up. Let's let's pull back the aperture a little bit, widen the aperture, and and sort of ask. These are the hot spots today. If you look forward, I don't know, five, ten, whatever the number of years you need to look forward. What are some things we're going to be talking about more down the road?
1: It depends. You know, I think a lot of this turns on one thing. Um, that's kind of a microcosm of the broader, uh, geopolitical trends, or I think a lot of the India believed that the United States, which in the past has tried to restrain New Delhi from retaliating with kinetic action after a terrorist attack, you know, with the, with the message that, you know, it doesn't end, it doesn't end well. There's no good that can come of it. Um, you know, if what you have to do to reestablish deterrence, you can't do. And so. You know, why risk escalation um, unnecessarily? This time, I think the U.S., the Indians believe, at least based on public reporting and discussions I've had in Delhi, that the U.S. basically gave India green light to retaliate. John Bolton's readout made it seem like, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And we only got involved like late when then it looked like things were going to spin, potentially spin out of control. um, And Secretary Pompeo was on the phone. But at that point, India and Pakistan also didn't really have an interest in going to war. I think the biggest geopolitical development five years will be if this trend line continues and U.S. retrenchment from global affairs uh, continues, we will see more nuclear powers. We will see less uh, American um, management or or involvement with crises between nuclear powers. And sometimes, you know, that may... uh, that may result in really dangerous escalatory dynamics. So when I look, we, five years down the road, you know, if if this trend line continues, it's not out of the realm of possibility. We're already seeing, you know, in the Middle East, we haven't talked about Iran, but we're already seeing the Middle East and the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia hedging their bets on nuclear technologies, which you know, obviously uh, have uh, you know are driven by their desire, I think, to have a nuclear weapons hedge in some form or another. And in Asia, Japan is essentially a virtual nuclear weapon state. And it's not out. Maybe South Korea doesn't go or, or or does depending on their government. But we may be in a world where we see a lot more virtual nuclear states or hedgers, and you know their nuclear tinge crises. And it the biggest geopolitical challenge I think in the next five years, depending on what happens in the election next year, is American retrenchment. And I think a lot of a lot of nuclear powers in the world, and I think a lot of countries are not thinking about it. I think Kim Jong Un is betting on it. For him, it's perfect. But for you know India and Pakistan, and for uh, for even China, I'm not sure what it what the world looks like because, in a lot of ways, for better and worse, the United States has been the policeman uh, when it's come to nuclear tinge crises in the world. Uh, and if the U.S. you know abdicates, then you know that is that could portend both more nuclear powers and more dangerous nuclear crises. I think for me, that's a big wild card. That's why I think the election next year. You know, if President Trump wins again, I think that becomes the you know four years
0: of you know, I, a foreign better, policy ideology
1: can be reversed, sure, but eight years sure. is much more hard. Is yeah, much yeah. more difficult.
0: Right. Yeah. But by, by retrenchment, I think it might be better to say utter diffidence, because I, I think retrenchment sort of suggests that you're pulling troops and and, and things out. Of, it's more maybe a diplomatic retrenchment in that maybe. sense. Maybe. I mean, but I, I'm I, not, th-
1: I don't know. You know, the the it, President Trump thinks alliances are costly. He doesn't value the alliances the way 70 years of American foreign policy and president's bi- bipartisan consensus has. Uh, I mean, I think he... It, Kim Jong-un can't believe his luck to have a president that may actually prefer uh, a weaker alliance with the South Koreans because he doesn't see the value. And, you know, shaking down the allies the way he has. I mean, this morning with Turkey, you know, this is a NATO ally. And this is, a, you know, open threat against a NATO ally. Now, granted, Turkey is, you know, kind of unique in the NATO system, but... Um, <laughs> that's a diplomatic yeah, way to put I it. mean, nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, I mean, this is... And, you know, the, I think four years... It, the rest of the world and our allies are probably willing to give us one term, but two terms of the of 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 this political and foreign policy ideology might be very difficult. I think to reverse very quickly or very easily after the fact, and so that's a big wild card. So, yeah, uh, you know, I think we're going to see more nuclear states, regardless. But depending on you know how the U.S. approaches the world, uh, both ne- in the next year. I mean, if the next year is just riled up with these domestic political concerns and impeachment hearings et cetera. then i just the the us just the administration won't have the bandwidth to deal with any crises that emerge and you know the most dangerous crises are the ones that blindside you right the slow burn crises we can see but it's the uh, you know the terrorist attacks in india that spin up really quickly and are you prepared if you're focused so much on impeachment as administration uh to deal with that when it comes up i would say no
0: that is a dark and appropriate place to leave the conversation. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Awesome. Griffin.
1: Thanks, guys. That was a lot of fun.
0: And thanks to our producer. Oh, I don't know Cecil. fun
1: is the right word. That was yeah. Uh, it was interesting. Yeah, it's it's what we do.
0: <laughs> thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman, and to all of you for listening. To continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at PowerProblems. And if you like the show, please do leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts.